0: Well, let's pray. Well, Father, we love coming together. We love singing to you. We love fellowshipping in your name. We love partaking in communion together. Lord, we count it a privilege that we can gather together and worship you. And Father, we have sung to you, we have prayed to you, and now we wanna listen to you, and we thank you that you speak through your word. We thank you for this account that will challenge us. I pray that you will be clear, that your Holy Spirit will work so that we can understand and embrace this message. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Pastor Paul moved to Washington, D.C. about 10 years ago. He moved there because he wanted to plant a church in the heart of the capital to reach America. He wanted to reach America's leaders. And so, through thoughtful Bible teaching as well as strategic outreach, he actually planted and grew a church of the very type of people that he wanted to reach. It's not only ethnically diverse, There are congressmen and senators from both parties. There's judges, lawyers, lobbyists, high-profile leaders that are drawn to his thoughtful preaching. One day, as he is greeting the congregants after he preached the sermon, a a new visitor comes and, and shakes his hand and introduces himself as Ray. And as Pastor Paul is holding Ray's hand, he notices On one hand, across the knuckles are W-H-I-T-E, followed by P-R-I-D-E on the other hand. And this man, Ray, wants to get together with Pastor Paul. Pastor Paul agrees. They swap contact information. And Pastor Paul looks up Ray on the internet and figures out that Ray is a racist of the worst sort. He has a YouTube channel that's devoted to white supremacy. If you look at his Twitter handle and tweets, they are vile, reprehensible, racist, and cruel. When he meets with Ray, he is stunned to see a certain amount of spiritual interest on the part of Ray the racist. And Pastor Paul continues to meet with him over a period of three to four months, and at the end of it, Ray has repented. He recognizes the sin of racism in his own heart. He's taken down the YouTube channel, not before issuing a public repudiation of his past beliefs. He's taken down all the tweets. But kind of like the tattoo on his knuckles, he can't get rid of it all. Now he wants to be baptized and become a member of the church. Ray is excited about the possibility, agrees to, or I'm sorry, Pastor Paul is excited that Ray the racist wants to be baptized and and schedules the baptism. And that's when he gets a call from James. James has been going to the church for about a year. He is a well known federal judge, a district judge, who is on the short list to become a Supreme Court justice. And James the judge talks to Pastor Paul and says, can I have a moment? You know that I'm still on the fence about this whole Christianity thing. I'm drawn to it. I think what you do is great. But here's the deal. If Ray, the racist, is baptized and becomes a member of this church, and I am associated with him, If I am nominated to become a Supreme Court Justice, the Judicial Committee will eat me alive. If he joins this church, I can't be a part of it. So if you're Pastor Paul, what do you do? What do you do? Do you try to maybe place... Ray in a in a different church so that you can keep on reaching the Jameses of this world? Do you tell James to to take a hike? What do you do? With that in mind, let's turn to Luke seven thirty-six through fifty. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisees' house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins Now, this is a singular story. It's not to be confused with Mary's anointing of Jesus before he was about to be crucified. It's an independent story that kind of follows in a common theme that we see in Luke, where Jesus confronts the self-righteous, right? Do you see that in the prodigal son? you see that in the Pharisee and the publican? And within this, this finely crafted story are three main characters, right? You have Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. He, he is electrifying Israel with his preaching. He's mesmerizing them with all of his miracles. He is the number one candidate for being the Messiah, and everyone knows it. But there's one problem. Sure, he's got the teaching, he's got the miracles, But this is articulated in 734, where people say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You know, we'd feel a lot better about Jesus' messianic credentials if he wasn't friends with those people, right? The next character is the woman. She's anonymous to us, but she is notorious to the community. Everybody knows her, and for the wrong reasons. Now, Jesus acknowledges that her sins are many. Jesus does not disagree with this assessment. We don't know for sure, but the fact that she seems to be unattached, known as a sinner, the most likely occupation of hers was the world's oldest profession, a prostitute. Uh, She was someone who got around, no man would marry her, the devout would stay away from her, wise would look at her with suspicion, and yet she managed to make a living, make enough money to buy some ointment. And then you have Simon. He is a Pharisee and an expert in the law. He is Jesus' dinner host. Now, when you read the commentaries on this, there, there's some controversy about how bad is Simon. When you look at the number one enemy in Luke, it's the scribes and Pharisees, right? This nameless, self-righteous horde. If, if I were to call you a Pharisee, it's not a compliment, right? So, one way of taking this is that Simon is trying to lure Jesus into a trap, and then he intentionally insults him by withholding all of the social graces uh, that have to do with hospitality. Doesn't anoint his head, doesn't kiss him on the cheek, and he doesn't give him water for his feet. Simon is bad. Now, here's a problem with that. Number one, Jesus addresses Simon by name. There is a, there's a humanizing element to this. And, and secondly, when Jesus and Simon go back and forth, there's almost this respectful discourse. He's even open to Jesus being a, a, a prophet, which explains why he is having him over. This is what I think is happening. He wanted to have an audience with Jesus without being accused of being a follower of Jesus. Now, last summer, President Joe Biden took a trip to Saudi Arabia. Reason being, gas prices were way too high, and he wanted to plead with the Saudi government <clears throat> to produce more oil to lower the gas prices. Now, this was a very, dip- very uh, difficult diplomatic mission for him because Saudi Arabia, according to the CIA, arranged for the assassination of a prominent journalist. Do you remember that? And so if Joe Biden were to be all chummy with the lady of Saudi Arabia, he would alienate some of his base at home. At the same time, he was going to Saudi Arabia for a reason, and if he insulted them, he would fail in his diplomatic mission. And so you can imagine that they probably had a discussion. When you meet the crown prince, who's the de facto ruler of the country, how are you going to greet him? Are you going to bow before him in deference? Are you going to give him the buddy handshake? Do you remember what they settled on? We'll give him a little fist bump, right? Something that's deferential, not deferential, kind of friendly. And, and yeah, bad optics, admittedly, but you can kind of see that was kind of the discussion that was being had. So I think in this case, Simon wanted to have Jesus over, but decided to give him a little fist bump, right? Not the full orb hospitality. So when you look at all this placed together, obviously, one of the most powerful characters and, and moments in this story is a sinful woman who basically humiliates herself to honor her Lord, right? That that woman who was a sinner is just a great reminder of God's transforming grace. Now, it doesn't matter what you've done or who you've been. If you love Jesus and rightly relate to Jesus, you can give pure, wonderful, commendable worship, right? That is a true statement, and it's great. But I think the, the larger point of this narrative is to focus not on the woman, right? The woman is not named. Uh, the woman is saved. This is a narrative about saving Simon. About saving Simon. I mean, so often when you read the Gospels, you always think about the, the scribes and Pharisees being the enemies of Jesus and kind of being cast to the side but Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and the lost would include the scribes and Pharisees, right? Jesus was a friend of sinners, even self-righteous sinners. I mean, we live in a, in a culture, right, where it's cancel culture, where if people do the wrong thing, they're, they're canceled. And, and I think it's very clear that we could see the gospel opportunities with those people, right? Prison ministry, Easy sell for people, right? They're they're people who've been canceled, kicked out of society. You share the gospel with them. But have you ever thought about reaching the canceling people? We live in a very self-righteous society. And self-righteousness, if you think about it, feels really good. I love feeling superior to other people, don't you? And you're probably thinking, I'm feeling superior to you right now for saying that. And yes, that does feel good. <laughs> right? Self righteousness is something that defines our society, a sense of justice. And, and there is something scandalous about saying that doesn't matter what you've done, you could be an ardent racist and you could be welcomed into the fellowship of the church. So, how do you reach the Simons? How do you save the Simons? Well, what we're going to do. we're going to walk through this passage and then reflect on how to answer that question. We're going to see the controversy, the confrontation, and then the conclusion. And what we're going to see is that even though the Pharisees made themselves enemies of Jesus, Jesus loves his enemies. And Jesus wants to reach out to the self-righteous and save the self-righteous, to save the Simons in this room and beyond. So let's look at the controversy in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So, Jesus likely preached at the synagogue, and he received a special dinner invitation from Simon. Jesus, why don't you come on over? We'll have meal, we'll invite some of the other local leaders, and perhaps discuss the teaching and other things, right? There's, there's a way of having fellowship around the meal, although it wasn't really fellowship because... Simon very carefully makes sure that he doesn't embrace Jesus too much so that his pharisaical friends don't get the wrong idea. And so what they would do is they would gather around a kind of a table on the floor and and they would kind of lean like this with their feet extended out this way and they would kind of reach over and grab the food and eat that way. So Jesus is reclining, his feet are extended away from the table when when all of a sudden the following happens. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet began she began to weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, as I mentioned, she was a notorious sinner, likely a prostitute. Gave her body to hundreds of men a year. If you're walking by her, wise, with your husband, you would lay back and make sure that your husband does not give any knowing looks to her. Around the dinner table, if your girls are acting up and being rebellious, you say, you better be careful or you'll end up like her. No man would touch her, no man would marry her. She was a sinner. But clearly, she had a previous encounter with Jesus, one that changed her life. She might have been in the audience when Jesus was teaching. Perhaps, Jesus talked to her. He was a friend of sinners, after all. But she was someone who was transformed by Jesus. And when she hears that Jesus is reclining and eating, she takes a great risk and basically crashes the banquet. She has a message that she wants to give, and that's one of of love and gratitude. Verse 38 And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So Jesus is reclining. Remember, his feet are extended out barefoot. She comes in and and he can almost hear the judgmental thoughts, right? What is she doing here? And And why is she... Why is she weeping? And then immediately she gets on her knees and she's hovering over Jesus' feet, weeping. And, and the word weeping is also used of rain showers. Right? We're talking water just pouring out of her eyes onto his feet. And all the dust begins to moisten and she decides to wipe it clean with her hair. And that's has indignifying as it sounds. When she is satisfied that his feet are clean enough, she doesn't dare kiss him on the cheek. She kisses him on his feet over and over and over again. And then she takes out an alabaster jar, cracks it, pours it on Jesus' feet, and, and rubs it in. If I was there, being honest, I would be uncomfortable by that. It, it'd make me kind of cringe. Um, this was given her background, what she's doing, touching his feet like that. Um, there's erotic undertones to this. It would have been interpreted that, like that in, in that day and age. And Simon, He has an honest thought. He's a Pharisee, a keeper of the law. He baptized, I'm not even baptized, he circumcised his baby boys, he ate kosher, he kept the Sabbath, he did everything a good Jew was supposed to do. He's inviting Jesus over, entertaining the prospects that he's something more than a teacher. And he says to himself, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Number one, if he was a prophet, he wouldn't allow a woman to do this. And if he was a prophet, he would know, you definitely don't let a woman like her do this. Right there is like, this is not going well in Simon's mind. I feel a whole lot better about Jesus If he didn't allow this to happen. So he thinks that in his mind. And Jesus answers his mental objections. We see this in the confrontation. He didn't say his thoughts out loud, but Jesus knows them. And answering, Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. The identity of the Pharisee is known. His name is Simon. Jesus calls him by name. Ask permission. Simon grants it. Verse 41. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Right? We have two debtors. They owe different amounts. One is 10 times the debt of the other. This would be the difference between paying out the balance of your car and your mortgage. Both of them... Owe the same person different amounts of money. And there is a problem in verse 42 when they could not pay, they were not able to pay the debt. Now, when you're not able to pay a debt, you are in big trouble. You can't just declare bankruptcy where you can keep one car and you can keep your house and just gradually pay off the creditors. You might have to be sold into slavery. You might have to sell one of your children into slavery. You might go into debtor's prison. You might lose your land. They wished they had bankruptcy laws back then. They were way more kind. Both of them were insolvent. Both of them couldn't pay. Both of them were in trouble, and they knew it. However, there is a twist in this story. He canceled the debt of both. He canceled the debt of both. Now, there's some obvious parallels here, right? You have Simon. He is the debtor who owed 50 denarii. And then you have the woman who is 10 times worse. She owes 500 denarii. One is righteous and the other one is not. And Jesus asked the question, verse 42. Now, which one of them will love him more? Right? It's a layup. We all know the answer, and good for Simon for saying it. Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Simon doesn't maintain surly silence. He answers the parable truthfully. And then Jesus turns it on Simon. Simon. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Simon didn't even give Jesus the common courtesy of just giving him some water so that he can clean his feet. This woman not only did that, she went above and beyond that. She wet his feet at the expense of her own dignity. Verse 45, you gave, me no kiss, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased kissing my feet. If you look at Eastern Europe and other places, they would kiss, you know, and, you know that's how they greet it. It's like shaking hands. I mean, can you imagine Jesus comes into this room and Simon doesn't even shake his hand. Jesus was, oh, right? Jesus says, you didn't even do that. And she has not stopped kissing my, my feet. She's going above and beyond, humiliating herself to give me the proper greeting. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Olive oil was cheap in those days. He couldn't even give a little bit to Jesus. And yet, she impoverishes herself to anoint of all places his feet. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying that the true scandal that just took place, the true scandal is not this woman doing what she did to my feet. The true scandal, Simon, is how you treated me. That is the true scandal. And then he makes it very clear in the conclusion. Therefore, I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now note, he does not minimize this woman's sin. Her sins are many. He acknowledges that. But because of her many sins... Her debt was canceled. And what is the appropriate response to that? Gratitude and love. She loves much. What you are seeing, Simon, is an expression of gratitude and love for what I have done. And then he says to her in verse 48. Your sins are forgiven. In front of the Pharisees, in front of Simon, in front of the entire audience, this notorious woman, he looks at her and says, Your sins, which are many, are forgiven. Stunning. What? And there's another layer here. Where it's not so much that her sins are forgiven, then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Are you kidding me? How does he know her sins are forgiven? Does he prophesy it? He's making a declaration. Jesus is presuming to do the work of God. Right? If you were to sin against Becky and I were to say your sins are forgiven, that's not my place to say, right? That's only her place to say it. If Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he's presuming to have the divine authority to say so. And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. This woman is not saved by her act of devotion and gratitude and love, right? What saved her? It was her faith. She had faith in Jesus as the Messiah, that he would save and rescue her. And, and here's the news. We don't know those woman's name now, but we will in heaven. Isn't that amazing? Tell me your story. As we kind of work through everybody's story in heaven. I mean, we have trillions of years. We could do that. In one of these conversations, we're going to talk to her and And realize, wait, 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 wait a second. You're the woman from Luke 7? I mean, when Jesus says your sins are forgiven and your faith has saved you, that is a, that's a declaration, right? She is in heaven. Jesus said so. I wish I had that kind of certainty about my salvation, right? She is in heaven. You see, what we learn... is is that salvation is not based on your relation to the law. It is not based on on keeping the Sabbath. It's not based uh, on circumcision. It's not based on on eating kosher. Salvation is not based upon your relationship to the law. Your salvation is based upon your relationship to, to Jesus. See, the problem with Simon Simon, he only thought he needed a little bit of forgiveness. His salvation was based primarily upon himself and his relationship to the law. In contrast, this woman understood that her salvation is based solely upon Jesus. See, when you look at it, there's really two grand things that can keep us from from the Savior. Number one is our own sin. And I think this woman is a great illustration. There are many people out there and you might be some of them where you think, I have done too much. The Lord could never forgive me. I've done too much. The Lord could never forgive me. After all I've done, He can forgive everybody else except for me. Jesus would say, look at this woman. It's not too late. If He can forgive her, He can forgive you. He can forgive everyone right so our sin can keep us from from faith in christ but there's another thing that can keep you from faith in christ which is i've already done a lot i don't need much more jesus i don't need you to do it for me i just need an assist i'm climbing this wall here can you just give me a little bit of boost to get up and over the edge Now, which one is the bigger threat to your salvation? Thinking your sin is too great or thinking your righteousness is really great? What's the bigger obstacle? Thinking your sin is too great or thinking that your righteousness is too great? I think we know the answer. The most dangerous sin, the most damnable sin, the most deceptive sin is the sin of self-righteousness. Agreed? The hardest people to reach for the gospel are those who are self-righteous. They're the people where you have to do the two-stage salvation, right? With, with a prisoner, you don't need to get them unsaved. They know they're not saved. But with a righteous person, you have to get them unsaved and then get them saved. It's way more difficult. And, and we live in a, a day and age where there is a great concern for righteousness and a great concern for justice And the degree of self righteousness that people have right now is probably at an all time high. Right? People think they are righteous. We are good. We are on the side of justice. No matter the ethical system, left, right, it doesn't matter. Self righteousness is a Kool Aid that everybody is drinking. So, how do you penetrate that? Well, one of the big Obstacles for self-righteous people is that they are scandalized by the gospel. Did you know that? The gospel actually offends them. Many people are scandalized by inclusion. How can we include somebody like racist Ray? I've had many gospel conversations where one of the objections that people would bring up is, okay, my grandma was sweet and kind, but an agnostic. How can you tell me that she will be judged for her sins forever, and these serial killers who claim to be born again in prison will be in heaven when my grandma will not? Have you ever heard that one? In fact, do you go down the line and you Google born again serial killers? There's a lot out there. There's a lot out there. In fact there was a book written by the pastor who led one of them to Christ and and I was looking at uh, an article that pointed me to some of the Amazon reviews and this is one of the Amazon reviews I don't know why you or this person who posted above you cares about the state of this killer's soul much less has any desire to meet him in heaven it's just plain creepy Some of the people who have read the pastor's book and written reviews are thrilled that God can and does forgive anything, and how much more hope it gives them of getting into heaven. Good Lord, what kind of sins did they commit themselves to be relieved by something like that? Right? Scandalized. What kind of sin did these people commit that they're encouraged that the serial killer is going to heaven? We, we have an understanding that forgiveness is a weapon of the oppressor where you call certain people to forgive their abusers and their oppressors and you forego justice. Uh, forgiveness is seen as something that can minimize the heinous nature of their crimes. If you welcome a notorious sinner into the community without some sort of public humiliation or shame, then it's almost like you're saying that what they did did not matter. For James the judge, If the church were to welcome Ray the Racist into their community, it would reflect poorly on him. He would be stained by that person's reputation. So what do you do in this situation? How do you reach James the judge? Well, the answer is not to coddle his self-righteousness, it's to expose it. You see, when he says, I can't be associated with him, there's many things latent in that. Number one, James the judge does not believe in the supernatural power of God to change people, not with any conviction. James the judge is more concerned about his reputation than what is right. James the judge is not a friend of sinners. James the judge forgives little because he loves little. He's been forgiven little because he loves little. Yeah, right? A church with no space for people like Ray the Racist is not a church that loves much. Now, I do want to clarify something here. When Jesus says, you've been forgiven little, does he mean that Simon's been all the way forgiven? Not any more than he tells uh, the Pharisees in in Matthew chapter 7, or chapter 5, that it's not those who Are sick, that need a doctor, but those who are healthy. Do you remember that? Is Jesus saying that the Pharisees are healthy? He's talking about their own perception. If you love little, that's a problem. If you've been forgiven little, then that's your self-perception. You're really missing the point. See, Jesus is making a larger point, Simon. Your sin is actually great because you suffer from the sin of self-righteousness. And self-righteousness will show itself in how we regard those people who need grace and mercy. Now, honestly, what would happen, and and I'm going to qualify this. I understand that you have to take precautions to, to shepherd people, to look out for the safety of other people, okay? With that in mind, how would you feel if a prominent and public member of the Fred, Fred Phelps clan shows up in our church. What would he do? What would he do, or what would you think, if a woman showed up actually dressed like a prostitute? What would you do if a person you knew to be on the sex offender registry came into this room? What would you do if a transgender individual walked into this room? And I realize that there's some pastoral work that would need to be done. There's some proactive and protective steps that need to be taken. I think most of you would see it as a gospel opportunity, just being honest. I think most of you would. But some of you would have a really hard time. And that's who I want to talk to. You're more like James the Judge and Simon than you think. You have an us versus versus them dynamic. And if you're not careful, you're not diagnosing the real rot in your soul, which is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, when you think about it, is the ultimate insult against God. It tells God that my righteousness and your righteousness are not that far apart. It's like telling Pat Mahomes... Hey, I quarterback as well. You know, you and I are a lot alike. God, your righteousness and my righteousness, you know, we're we're not that far apart. You're above me, but not much. You know, Jesus, I'm glad you died for my sin. I kind of needed that extra boost, but you didn't have to suffer that much for me. The self-righteous people, they enjoy looking down on other people. They love hearing about the sins of others so they can think, "Mm -hmm, I would never do that. Tell me more about their sin. It inflates your own value and importance before God It's the fruit of pride. And God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. I mean, self-righteousness is the most dangerous, deceptive, and damning sin. Those who are self-righteous, get this. They're not just 500 denarii debtors. They're like a 1,000 denarii debtors. Now, for those of you who look at that sinful woman and you think, I wish I had a testimony like that because I would love more. If only I was a hitman for a Mexican cartel who came to Christ, then I would love more. If only I partied in college and had three abortions, then I would love more. If only I was a hedge fund manager who swindled people out of their life savings and then came to Christ, then I would love more. Well, I've got news for you. Self-righteousness is just as loathsome, if not more so, than all their sins. And if you've been forgiven of self-righteousness, you can indeed love more. See, the key to saving Simon is not to coddle self-righteousness, but to expose it. It's to point to God's mercy to people who need it and say they are not saved by being righteous. They are saved by faith. They're not saved by their relationship to the law. They are saved by their relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is something that Jesus is going to repeat, isn't he? Prodigal son? Who does he seek to save? Who does the father seek to save at the end? It's the older brother. See, in the good news, if you're self-righteous, Jesus still loves you. He still died on the cross for you, and he wants to rescue you. But you have to acknowledge that there is a barrier that's holding you back. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Right? Salvation is available to all, even if you're self-righteousness. And what's really interesting about this parable, or about this story, is there is a story being told, right? Where Simon invites Jesus over, he considers whether or not Jesus is really a prophet, that is now under suspicion, and he has mental thoughts that indicate it so, and then Jesus reads his mind, which is something only prophets can do, right? Addresses it. And you see, the sinful woman is, is declared to be forgiven and saved. But that declaration is not given to Simon, is it? It's almost like if you were to watch the movie of this, the final frame would be set on Simon. And there would be a question. What about you, Simon? Are you going to love little or love much? Or are you going to admit that you've been forgiven little or forgiven much? What you decide, Simon, in this moment will determine your eternity. And that's what I leave you with. Do you believe that you've been forgiven little? Or do you believe you've been forgiven Much. How you answer that question, and we're looking at the honest answer, not the, oh, of course much, but if you find yourself thinking that I've been forgiven little, especially compared to all these other people, you're a lot more like Simon than you realize. Let's pray. Well, Father, I pray for the Simons in this room. That they will come to terms with the evil of self righteousness. That they will turn from it, turn to you, and see that righteousness is not given to us on the basis of our relationship with the law, but by our relationship with you. That we'll gladly surrender everything to you as people who truly need a Savior. And that you'll transform and change us, give us hearts of gratitude and love. In Christ's name, amen.